Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction. We were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. This is part three of our five-part series on Dopesick with New York Times writer and best-selling author Beth Macy. In part one and two of this series, we focused on what made Appalachia so vulnerable to the opioid crisis and Purdue Pharma's Oxycontin marketing efforts and the impact it had on that region. In today's episode, we'll talk to Dr. Stephen Lloyd and Dr. Robert Pack about the transformation of their community through a collaboration that resulted in Overmountain Recovery. We begin with an introduction to Overmountain from the best-selling author of Dopesick, Beth Macy. So it was started out of this public professor at ETSU and this doctor named Steve Lloyd who uh, himself was in recovery for opioid pill addiction. In fact, at one point at the height of his addiction, he'd broken his own ankle um, so he could get surgery and get pills. And his father sort of called them out and he ended up, you know, going to months and months of treatment and having uh, a really good um, kind of support network. And he became Tennessee's drug czar. So Steve, Dr. Steve, um, Dr. Robert Peck, this public health dean at ETSU, um, they established this huge collaboration five, six years ago, and they get anyone in the whole region that has anything to do with addiction kind of all to meet together once a month, and they start collaborating. They start applying for grants, and um, they start a center for prescription drugs and um, drug abuse research, and and a couple of years back, they, they realized they didn't have enough um, good medication-assisted treatment clinics. They had a lot of cash-only clinics that they felt weren't using evidence-based uh, methods. A lot of them were operating cash-only, co-prescribing benzodiazepines. And they looked um, at, and this is one of the highest prescribing areas for Suboxone and buprenorphine in the country, but they didn't feel like they were always had the um, patient's best interests at heart kind of felt like they were the pill mills of yore. And so they said, you know, we're going to pick this community that we think is underserved and we're going to open uh, an evidence-based practice of buprenorphine and methadone. And we're also going to have alternate therapies, counseling, you know, uh, connections to housing and job services. And it was called Overmountain Recovery. And so they decided to locate it in this underserved community called Gray, Tennessee, and no one in this tiny town of 3,000, which is ma- mainly a farming community, wanted them to open it. Even as some of them said, um, my own son is struggling with this. And I think their story is just so uh, compelling be- and it's be- it, because it can, it can be replicated elsewhere, but also you had these you know, two or three people really willing to stand up and tell their story over and over again and make the case to bring in people from elsewhere who have tried similar things and say, look, you know, people aren't like running into school buses when they come out because we know how to do this. We're doing it the right way. And, you know, they got the state involved, behavioral health, um, all these different groups and really went at it right. But they had to overcome a lot of kind of um, 
stigma and barriers of that nature just in the local community. But they're willing to do it. And now they're doing research out of there and, and they've been open for over a year and they haven't had any incidents. And, you know, I think the community is slowly trying to going to accept it. But that's a real tough nut to crack, getting medication assisted treatment in rural communities that have seen it um, maybe not be um, um, offered the right way. Initially, a lot of diversion and abuse that law enforcement is concerned about. And but they figured out how to do it. And I just I just think that's a, a great story to end the book with. Um, it's you know, it's one of the stories near the end of the book um, because they were able to show the community that, like, you know, these are this addiction is a chronic relapsing disease. These are these are our people. Are we just going to let them die? You know. Is that the right thing to do? I don't think so. I spoke with Dr. Stephen Lloyd, the medical director of the Division of Substance Abuse Services at the Tennessee Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services, who shares this story of his descent into opioid addiction. So from that two and a half milligrams of hydrocodone that day, three years later, uh, I was taking the equivalent of 100 Vicodin pills per day. Okay, not 100 milligrams, but 100 pills, 500 milligrams of Oxycontin a day is where I wound up within three years. How could your system process all of that? I mean, that just seems so overwhelming. Yeah, acutely it can't. So, you know, I've, I've, uh, I've been in recovery now for coming up on 15 years. And if I took that amount today, right now, I can assure you I would overdose and likely die unless somebody had Narcan nearby. So it happened gradually over time. And there were little things along the way, Greg, that, that I didn't pay attention to. I remember, you know, I, I set down all these boundaries for myself. You know, I'm never going to use it during this time or I'm never going to obtain it for myself, or uh, I'm never going to, uh, you know, I'm never going to use it solely to, you know, to not have that feeling, you know, all these little things I put in place and I broke through every one of them. I didn't know what, um, you know, title of that best book is, is dope sick. I didn't know what being dope sick was, you know, cause when we're in medical school and pharmacology and we're learning about opioid narcotics and heroin. We get this list of, of symptoms that people have whenever they don't have the drug anymore. I never fully understood that those symptoms were going to be full blown and you were going to feel them until you got the drug back in your system. I didn't fully understand that. And I, I was a trained physician and I'm telling you that, that I don't think most physicians understand that, you know, because we're taught how to take a test and pick the symptoms out of a list of, of, of multiple choice questions. Right. So I, I came to this reality when I ran out of Lortab one time and, and um, I was actually out and about and I, I felt myself getting sick and I felt like the flu. And I think I remember thinking, Kelly, no, I don't feel right. I think I'm coming down with something. I went home and told my wife, Karen, I said, I think I'm getting the flu. And so the next day goes on. Now I've been about, you know, 36 hours without the drug. And now I'm starting to get into full-blown withdrawals. And I'm really sick. So I stay home from work, treat myself for the flu. And then I get my hands on some Lortab. And right after putting one in my mouth, the symptoms all went away. And I went, oh, I know what this is. Dependence is not the same thing as addiction. Dependence is just when you stop using the drug, you go through a predictable physiologic withdrawal syndrome, i.e. you get dope sick. Addiction is the continued use despite consequences. And so I, I was physiologically dependent, but at the time I still hadn't had consequences. And those were, those were a little bit later, but I eventually had all those. I continued to justify my use through those consequences, and I had full-blown addiction. So let's talk a little bit about how you did obtain the drugs. 
Oh, well, the first thing is, is out of people's medicine cabinets. And so one of the big one of the big initiatives across the United States that I'm sure you're well aware of is the is the uh, take, drug take back programs. Yep. And so the reason for that is, is that the majority of first time users of pain medication get the medication free for friends or family by the studies about 70 percent. And so I didn't follow a different path. So at first, that was my supply. I would get it out of people's medicine cabinets. And so started out with an aunt that I knew had it because she had breast cancer and still took it on occasion. And uh, and, and so that became it. And I can tell you this, Greg, and, and for the people listening to the program, if you have these things in your medicine cabinet in your bathroom, do not be naive and think that nobody looks in your medicine cabinet. I can assure you they do. So over time, as I'm taking these opioids, these pain medications, my body is responding by making more opioid receptors. So I'm going to have to fill those receptors up. But the relief that you get from the drugs is actually by a chemical called dopamine. And so so the opioid receptor stimulates dopamine release. That's the feeling you're going for, right? So the whole time that those receptors are going up and have to be occupied, the dopamine receptors are actually going down. So the cycle of, of dependence and addiction is you're taking more and more to get less and less effect. So you will hear people with addiction talk about chasing that first high. It's a very common theme, and it's absolutely true, and that's how it happens. I knew it in concept, but now I knew it in real life. So as my tolerance started to build, I had to do other things to get the medication, obviously. Mm-hmm. So the first thing from that was getting it from my buddies who were docs, right? They all knew me, uh, you know, knew what kind of guy I was. I never had that history. I don't look like somebody who's out seeking pills. And so I would use them to get prescriptions. And, and it was kind of like the guy, you know, who's the alcoholic that never goes to the same liquor store two days in a row, right? Because you don't want the guy behind the counter to know you're an alcoholic. So you go to multiple liquor stores. And so I had to kind of keep that straight in my mind and, and you know, not hit the same person too often lest I would I would suspicion. Okay. And and so I did that for a while. But then, Greg, as tolerance builds and the and the pills keep going up and up, uh, you know, it, it gets really bad. And so, you know, one of the common things was other people who had the issue that that I knew about, you know, patients. And so you write them a prescription and and you know, they wound up giving, you know, giving me part of them back you know, busting scripts with patients and, uh, you know, just a a horrible thing to do, you know, and I've talked about this publicly before, but, uh, you know, I think that's way more common than than anybody would want to think because you've got the person in front of you who more than likely has addiction themselves and they need the drug themselves. Uh, You need the drug. I mean, so it's a, you know, it's a common denominator. I can tell you for sure that when I wound up getting help, that there were more than one person that had to go get help right behind me because their supplier was gone and I wasn't doing it for financial gain. I was doing it for my own you know, I, I feel like I couldn't live without it, and, and that's what people don't realize, Greg. The part of our brain that these drugs overtake is the part of our brain that's responsible for our will to live, our limbic system, our reward system. Next, Dr. Lloyd talks about his philosophy on recovery. I'm so grateful that I went through this because I'm such a better doctor now. Because I get people coming to me with this stuff, and the first thing they want to do is show me this calcification or this narrowing they have in their, in their spinal x-ray. Man, I know. Right? I know. And if I look over on your on your prescription monitoring uh, report where they, you know, trace you, trace your prescriptions and the doctors you're getting them from, and you've got three or four different doctors, and you're showing me this x-ray, man, you're Steve Lloyd circa 2002, buddy. And now I can step in and give you some real help instead of writing another pain medication for you or making you a slave further or kicking you out of my office and putting you on the street. I am such a better doctor. But But at the time, for me, it was a way to justify that because, you know, here, look. Look at this x-ray. You can obviously see, right? And But the truth is, it, subjectively, it wasn't causing me any pain, but it's what I used. And there's kind of a little that goes along with that, because after I had the surgery and I got my prescription and all that, 
I come home and I get a call from my orthopedist. And, and I tell you, she's a friend of mine and an awesome doctor. Mm-hmm. And she said, Steve, she said it was interesting. She said, we had a lot of trouble getting you under anesthesia was. Mm-hmm. And I knew why. And my dad does have a legitimate problem with anesthesia. And so I actually have a family history of somebody who has a problem with anesthesia. So I brought that up. I've never had a problem with it and I don't have a problem with it now. My problem with it then was my tolerance to pain medication that I was using illicitly. There's so many things here, Greg. And the one thing I want to uh, that I want to emphasize before we get started down this road is that I am supportive of whatever treatment pathway helps somebody, first of all, live, and second of all, helps them change their life, whatever that is. In my job every day, uh, when I wake up, and I, I wake up with one mission every single day, and I say it to myself, my job today is to help as many people into recovery as I can, period. And I don't care what route that is. And so I say that because there's such a split out there in the world. And so, you you know, you mentioned how it's portrayed on TV and the reality shows that we have, you know, celebrity rehab, intervention, those type of shows. And, and I, I get so emotional watching those shows because of, of the stereotype that they create. First of all, a 28-day treatment program, those don't exist. There, there's no such thing. Insurance companies don't, you, you don't have a benefit for your insurance that says if you have a a drug, a drug dependence or addiction of some type that you go to a program for 28 that doesn't exist. The patients that I take care of every day are going to get anywhere, if they're lucky, from 7 to 16, 17 days tops, tops based on what the insurance company uh, by the American Society of Addiction Medicine Criteria determined is medically necessary. And, and Greg, I, I can't tell you how sad that is because what I know and what my experience shows me is that whenever we put patients in long-term inpatient rehab, and give their brains time to wake up. And I know you've seen some of my talks and you've seen me talk about the frontal lobe and its importance in sudden judgment and how long that takes to come back online. If we keep people in, in high quality programs that address uh, their, their underlying trauma, a lot of this is driven by underlying trauma, and we provide a network for them uh, aftercare and follow-up for about five years. I'm not talking about treatment for five years, but I'm talking about accountability and, and follow-up for five years. That we structure. could have, yeah, absolute structure, and we know this works because we have treatment programs lined up like that for doctors and airline pilots. And if you look at the success rates of abstinence-based programs for doctors and airline pilots at five years, anywhere from seventy-eight to ninety-five percent of those folks will be in sustained long-term recovery. That's unbelievable. Doctor Lloyd comments on why he decided to start a treatment program. I was thinking, well, why are they still struggling? I've been able to do this, and my career's done nothing but up. And one night I was laying in bed thinking about that. And Greg, I sat straight up in my bed. My wife will tell you this is a true story. I was left in the face with my own arrogance because I, I started thinking, good Lord, Steve, you had 95 days of high quality inpatient treatment. The president of your university and the dean of your med school didn't fire you. They paid me the whole time I was gone. I had wonderful aftercare, accountability, follow-up. I had advocacy. I had a six-figure income. And Greg, I suddenly thought, what an arrogant ass, because the people I saw didn't have access to any of that. They didn't have access to treatment. Well, this is before the Affordable Care Act and before the Parity Act had been you know, fully put in place. It's still not fully in place, but the Wellstone Dimenici, uh, you know, um, um, uh, Act back in 2008, uh, you know, that said that you had to cover mental health the same way as you covered other diseases. Right. And so these folks didn't even have access to even this this fabled 28-day treatment program. And so 
that was the night that it all changed for me because they didn't have access to treatment. It would be like expecting a diabetic to get better without insulin. He didn't give me any treatment. And so that's when I started to really look at addiction medicine. And, and, and you know, this medication was, was available now called buprenorphine in the form of Suboxone that helped quell cravings. And people relapse in drug addiction, not because of being dope sick, but because of cravings. And so if you could somehow you know, hold cravings at bay and keep people in behavioral health and give them a chance to change their lives, you could prove their outcomes. Because nobody's going to get 90 days of inpatient treatment, five years of aftercare and follow-up. It's not going to happen. And so that's when I became really interested in looking at medication. I did that and started looking at what the evidence said that helped people, number one, live. I've yet to figure out how to treat somebody dead. So first of all, help them live. Second of all, help them get into recovery. And recovery does not mean abstinence. Recovery does not mean the use of any medication. That's not in the definition. Uh, yet most treatment programs in the United States are set up that way although it's not the most effective way to treat people long-term. Mm-hmm. And so when I started to look at that and started looking at what the evidence was and what people had access to, uh, I wanted to try to impact that. Dr. Robert Pack, professor of community and behavioral health at East Tennessee State University, shares how Overmountain Recovery came to be. The idea for Overmountain Recovery was hatched uh, in these early morning meetings I was having with Steve Lloyd. Steve, um, Steve and I are good friends, and and uh, we've been fighting sort of the same fight for a long time. And 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 uh, pretty much the only time we could meet because of our schedules was at seven in the morning. And so we would get together uh, at seven, and and you know every couple of weeks, and and sit here and, and hatch ideas on my on my whiteboard. And uh, and really, <clears throat> the insight of kind of how you see this uh, condition is really <laughs> dictated by how you get paid. That insight drove uh, Overmountain because what we decided was, hey, what if we could do a nonprofit? What, what if what if we did? What if we set up a nonprofit uh, treatment facility that um, where the revenues went back into uh, the care for the individuals and out to prevention, uh, so that we could ultimately drive ourselves out of business. <laughs> what if, what if we could, what if we could, uh, use revenues generated from a treatment, a clinical treatment model, uh, like a methadone clinic or a suboxone clinic and, and then take those revenues and then, uh, basically cut off, uh, the, the uh, the group uh, that accesses those by preventing the problem of opioid use disorder in the community, and that's kind of the vision behind Overmountain. Is we set this nonprofit, and we did it. We decided to put it in a uh, geographically accessible uh, space between the tri cities, if you will, and so it's not in a city center. It's actually kind of in a suburban area. Um, that, that historically, you know, hasn't had anything really controversial uh, <laughs> there. And and uh, the community just didn't want it there. It was uh, very much a not-in-my-backyard um, uh, protest against the clinic. Uh, and what's, what's really fascinating is <clears throat> that historically there had been a Suboxone clinic in that very building, but no one knew about it. Uh, because you know there were no there were no zoning appeals or anything like that that had to be done, and so. Uh, in that very clinic, uh, you see, it was a it was an urgent care facility for for a number of years, and it had the it had that particular suburb's only suboxone clinic, 
and uh, and no one even knew. And so the reality is that when methadone, new methadone operations uh, open up, crime tends to go down in an area because folks tend not to have to steal in order to pay for their illicit drug use <laughs> because methadone itself is actually uh, quite reasonably priced. And so there's a um, usually a decrease in crime. Next, in his words, Dr. Lloyd speaks about the one-year ass-kicking he and Dr. Pack took trying to start their clinic. So I was our unofficial opioid czar for the whole state. So now I had a bigger platform, and I also had a seat at the governor's table as he put together his policies to address the opioid epidemic in Tennessee. And Governor Haslam was great, and I'm grateful for that. So during this interim, Rob took most of the ass-kicking. because he, he attended every every public hearing. The hospital system really reached out to the community to try to explain why this was needed. And and Rob took the brunt of that. And the whole time, I'm following it in the newspaper from afar and, you know, reading the comments. But I was a part of it as well. The big events that happened was happened at our local fairgrounds. Fairgrounds I go to as a kid, you know, in, in the county fair. And they're having a big public meeting or mountain states and ETSU are reaching out to the community so that they can educate the community and then let the community voice their concern. And so, I talked the state into letting me go on behalf of the state to answer questions about the benefits of medically assisted treatment and how it was not simply switching one drug for another. So when we got up there that night, Greg, this big uh, this big area at the fairgrounds, uh, and it's my community. I grew up in Boone's Creek, which is Gray, Tennessee. Okay, my address was Gray, Tennessee as a kid. This is my community mm-hmm. where I where I was born and raised. We had a lady there named Rhonda Coffey who had lost her son to a heroin overdose. Rhonda is a wonderful person and. She's out advocating, you know, for more treatment options for folks. And uh, we had people that in that audience that night that that wouldn't let her finish talking. They were rude. They interrupted her. They yelled things out. It was behavior that I really couldn't imagine from anybody. But I understood it. And it wasn't coming. Some of it was mean-spirited, but most of it were coming from people that were scared. And I was trying to alleviate those fears because, to be honest with you, I used to think the same way in a lot of, a lot of instances. And one of the questions I got towards the end, and then you got to remember, this is exhausting. I mean, this is really standing there taking bullet after bullet. And and um, I got a question around how many chances does somebody get, you know? And I'm looking out, and, and I know this community, and I can see church steeples, you know, from where I am. And we're out in the middle of fairgrounds. So one church is literally on the other side of the gate. I can see the steeple from where I am. And I thought back, and, and, and you know, and I'm a faith-based guy. Um, and, uh, I thought back to, to, you know, when Christ was posed that, that question, you know, you know, how many opportunities does somebody, how many times do we forgive our brother? Is it, is it 70? And, and Christ's answer was, you know, why not 70 times seven? And Christ's point, it was not 490. You know, Christ's point was the same as, you know, the points of every other major religious text is, is really how many ever times it takes. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's the answer that I gave. And that's that's what I closed her book with. And when I read that, I was really moved by it because I meant that. And uh, and that's the answer I get. We're going to help you with some behavioral therapy. We're going to help you start to help you address some of the trauma issues in your life. We're going to help you address some of the behavioral things that confounded you a long time. We're going to help you build community because this is the most important thing that I want to say to you. The opposite of addiction is not recovery. The opposite of addiction is relationship and community. Okay? I'm going to say it a million times over. That's where we'll start to bend the curve. We're going to help you step into community. That's what medication does. And, and, and 
what what we want to do is look for ways to leverage that. So the easiest place is the criminal justice system. So you've talked to Rob earlier uh, today. And and Rob, I don't know if he shared with you, but he had a judge at Overmountain today named Dwayne Sloan that I've worked with for a long time who has the power uh, to hold people accountable through conditions of probation and parole outside of recovery court to help people stay in the process to give their frontal lobes time to recover. So that's the idea now. How do we network with the things that are already in existence in our community to help hold people accountable? Now, here's the other point to this. The biggest untapped resource we have out there as far as is the faith-based organizations. Yeah, How many of those? I mean, we got more churches in the state of Tennessee than we do uh, than we do gas stations, okay? It's what, 60 or 70% of Tennesseans identify with a faith-based organization. I don't care which one. I do this. Every single major religious text in the world has one common thing, and it's to love your neighbor. Every one of them has it. Hindu text, Buddhist text, all of them have it. The, the Quran, mm-hmm. all of them have that in common. If we can utilize that com- that community to put aside their thoughts of what they think they know about addiction and to start to reach out to people where they are and develop community, we will turn we'll turn the tide here. We're not going to save everybody, but we'll start to make a difference. Part of that is getting them to understand the role of medication because so many times we get buy-in and then they find out somebody's taking medication. No, we can't take them. Why not? Would you turn them away because they're uh, a diabetic that needs metformin? Because the only way you can argue against what I'm saying right now is that you view addiction as a moral failure. So we actually have uh, master's trained counselors on staff uh, that that folks can access and, and must access in order to be compliant with their treatment, but also have access to in terms of other groups and um, and and uh, group uh, counseling activities. Uh, so that that's on site and, and we if you will, overdeveloped that wing of the building so that we would have plenty of uh, counseling space. And um, we have uh, uh, the wraparound services. So Frontier is a longstanding uh, mental health uh, partner in the region, and so they have access to a number of different job training programs and housing programs and and, uh, things of that nature that our patients can really benefit from. And um, not only that, but since we're affiliated with a university and a medical school and a hospital system, uh, we can get people referred quickly to other services that they might need. And since the hospital system is a nonprofit hospital system, we have charity care baked into the whole system. And so um, it's it's a bit of a one-stop shop, if you will, for for uh, care and for for uh, folks who who uh, have different needs related to opioid use disorder. We conclude this podcast with Dr. Lloyd. The thing that I want everybody to understand is that uh, addiction is treatable, uh, treatment works, and, and people recover. You know, if I have a mantra, that's it. And uh, how important it is to help people find the path that's right for them. Well, basically, right now, we have two warring factions out here in the treatment world that believe that only their way is right. And in the middle of that, you, I mean, you the abstinence-based crowd that this is the only way to get there, and then the medication crowd, this is the only way to get there, and they are at war with each other. And stuck in the middle is that, that patient or that family uh, that's in crisis. Uh, we want to be the voice that helps them find the path that's best for them. And it's as simple as that. Thank you for listening to Part 3 of our five-part series on Dopesick with New York Times writer and best-selling author Beth Macy. Joining us in today's episode has been Dr. Stephen Lloyd and Dr. Robert Pack, 
who shared the story of how their community collaboration resulted in Overmountain Recovery. To learn more about their work, listen to Dr. Lloyd's podcast on addiction and recovery. It's called 70 Times 7, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in next time for part four of our five-part series on Dopesick with New York Times writer and best-selling author Beth Macy, where you'll hear a story of a community coming together to fight Big Pharma. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.